Good morning. It's lovely to see you all, and you're very welcome. Just a couple of things before we start. You'll have heard us mention in previous weeks about just at the end being conscious of um, not grouping together and mingling around. And just um, if it's helpful just to have another angle on why that's helpful. Uh, one reason that we want to be careful about mingling afterwards is that we don't want to have to shut down for a couple of weeks if anyone in the church develops symptoms of COVID. So if we have been keeping our distance, though, we won't need to do that. We can be confident it didn't spread while we were here together, wherever it did come from. So I just mentioned that as a reminder. And again, thank you for your patience. I know it's awkward. It's not exactly how we'd like it to be, but I appreciate your uh, patience with the situation. And just to mention that there are teddy bears available. Not many, though. Uh, they've been cleaned out earlier. Uh, second mouse, what is the saying? Early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. So uh, there are some teddy bears left. Um, Morris, you and I have to share one, I think. Uh, those are available for Taste, uh, in support of Taste, which is providing clean water in Nigeria. We support Taste as a church. And the teddies are available uh, for a donation of five pounds. Now, just to um, let you know, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper together at the end of our time this morning, so you can uh, be aware that that's coming up. And then we are, again, meeting at 6 p.m. this evening to continue looking at Matthew's Gospel. I hope that you can join us for that. We've gathered together <clears throat> to worship God. And we can do that in the dark or with the lights on. doesn't really matter. Uh, but the musicians are going to lead us in a song that helps us to focus on our God, His character, uh, His holiness. So uh, let's focus on our God as we hear and as we can join in quietly with holy, holy, holy.
Let's pray. <clears throat> oh God, as we consider in this song your absolute holiness and purity, we realize again just how privileged we are to know you and to know you not as strangers who have to stand at a distance. We thank you that we can come close as sons and daughters to their loving father. And we acknowledge we could never have earned this privilege. Nothing we could have done or we could do could ever earn us a place in your presence. What a gift you have given to us in this access we have. And we thank you for Jesus who paid for this gift. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who shows us the truth about Jesus. Who wakens us up to your great love. Who makes your written word come alive to us. So that we can hear you speak to us. We ask you to do all of these things this morning. Bring us close to you again. And we will be satisfied in you. Amen. We want to join in a Bible reading that reminds us we can never truly be satisfied apart from God. The words will be on the screen behind me. We'll say them together. Taken from Psalm 42. So if you'll stand with me, we'll join in this reading. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Amen. Our next song reminds us, Jesus Christ is the firm anchor for our hope. In him, we have an anchor for our souls. Strong tides lift and the cables. 
Uh, the Sunday school are going to be moving next door. Hopefully the lights come on for you. Those of you who watch sports like football or rugby, you will know that half time is pretty important. If you're watching, of course, it's a chance to make a cup of tea, which can be a little bit important. But for those who are actually involved in the game, half time is a chance to assess the situation. It's an opportunity to make adjustments for the second half. Sometimes a team that's getting soundly beaten in the first half emerges from halftime with a different plan and a different attitude and the whole situation turns around. Halftime is an opportunity to reset and to change course. And I mention that because as we turn to the book of Judges this morning, we are essentially at halftime in the book. The first nine chapters have shown us a people taking the wrong course. In chapter 1, we saw how the Israelites had a mission in the land of Canaan. They were to bring God's judgment on the Canaanites for centuries of evil in the land. And at the same time, as they did that, Israel would be claiming the land as their own inheritance. In that sense, the land was there as a blessing to be claimed. But we saw very quickly at the start of the book the Israelites had, had neither the ambition nor did they have the stomach for that mission. Instead of driving out the evil people in the land, the Israelites settled down among them. They made treaties with them, they intermarried with them, and they started worshipping their gods. And if that sounds enlightened and broad-minded, it wasn't, because it didn't result and the Canaanites getting any better. The result was the Israelites became just like the Canaanites. The place didn't become any less evil. The Israelites just joined in the evil. And it wasn't a fun experience. They suffered oppression under a whole series of harsh masters, like Eglon, king of Moab, Jabin, king of Canaan, who had a commander, Sisera. And most recently, we've heard about the Midianites who ravaged the land and impoverished the Israelites. And yes, in His great mercy, God raised up a series of deliverers. But Israel's approach didn't change. Every time a deliverer came on the scene, it was like an open goal for the Israelites. It was an opportunity for them to turn things around, but they never did. And the final action of the first half, we saw a new low point. Last week, we saw the Israelites fighting each other. Like two players on the same team going at each other out on the pitch. That happens sometimes. But in this case, it was more than just a punch-up. Many Israelites died, killed by fellow Israelites. 
It came about, you may remember, when Abimelech, one of Gideon's sons, killed his brothers on one stone so that he could become king. But that treachery and that evil ambition literally came back on Abimelech's own head as a woman dropped a millstone from the roof that crushed his skull. Abimelech's evil came back on him, but before that, he had inflicted plenty of pain and death on the people of Shechem who'd helped him kill his brothers. The first half of Judges could hardly have ended on a lower note. But now, it's half time. There's an opportunity for Israel to reset and to change direction. And as you and I look at Judges 10 this morning, we may find it's an opportunity for us as well to change our own outlook and approach. So if you'll turn there, we'll read this chapter together. <clears throat> After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel for 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. He was followed by Jer of Gilead, who led Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead which to this day are called Havoth-Jer. When Jer died, he was buried in Camon. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. This is God's Word. And it shows us two ways we may need to change our outlook and approach. First, don't waste your peace and prosperity. 
And then second, don't miss the point that relationship with God matters more than relief from hardship. First, in verses 1 to 8, don't waste your peace and prosperity. There are several judges or deliverers in this book who only get a passing mention. We're given just the barest of details about them. Tola and Jer are two of those judges. But that does not mean they were insignificant in terms of Israel's story. Their individual exploits might not have been spectacular, but between them, these two men led Israel for 45 years. And those 45 years were significant for Israel. Here's why they were significant. You'll notice that verse 1 refers to the time of Abimelech. The writer of Judges wants us to remember the mass of Abimelech's time, a time when Israelites slaughtered Israelites. And here, verse 1 says, Tola rose after that time to save Israel. In other words, he doesn't, didn't save Israel from any external enemy. He saved Israel from its own internal turmoil. Abimelech's reign had brought Israel to the point of disintegration. But Tola rose to save Israel from that. We're not told that he fought any battles. He may have done. But the impression we're given is that what he did was stabilize the country. He saved Israel by leading the people into a time of peace and order. And we should never underestimate that. The Israel we saw in chapter 9 was just a whisker away from self-destruction. For a leader to pull things back from the brink is amazing. So Tola's time leading Israel may not have been spectacular. Compared to the times of Gideon or Barak, Tola's time may have been unexciting. Not the kind of stuff that gets turned into action movies. But what a service to Israel to bring peace and stability. What an opportunity for Israel to set a new course. We might just take note of that in passing. The work of bringing peace and stability and preserving it, that might not be the kind of work that gets the headlines. But we all notice when that work isn't being done, don't we? In the history of the church, we know the names of the charismatic leaders who fought the big battles. Men like Martin Luther, who put his life on the line during the Reformation. And what Luther did was significant. It was crucial. But let's not underestimate those ordinary people who've done the unspectacular stuff through the centuries. Working quietly to help Christians love and care for one another. Bringing peace and stability in the church. Let's give thanks for those who do that quiet work today. And if we widen it out beyond the church to leaders in government, let's give thanks for those who do the boring work of providing us with a peaceful and stable society. I know we can always find plenty to complain about, 
Let's, let, let's not turn up our noses at life in Britain. Plenty of people in other countries are pretty eager to get here. The society you and I complain about seems to be pretty attractive to them. Peace and stability might be boring, but we would seriously miss them if we didn't have them. And when we do have them, they are an opportunity. We can use peace and stability well, or we can waste it. Through Tola's work, Israel had 23 years of order. Apparently, there was a break from upheaval and chaos. And if he brought peace, it seems his successor brought prosperity. Verse 3 says, Tola was followed by Jer of Gilead, who led Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead. Tola had inherited a crisis in Israel, and he brought calm. By the time Jer comes along, calm has allowed for prosperity. And that atmosphere of wealth is shown in the comment about these 30 sons on their 30 donkeys. Now, I realize nowadays donkeys have fallen on hard times. Nobody's going to get excited about riding a donkey, unless you're five. But at this time in history, kings rode on donkeys. They were considered to be noble steeds. So one commentator says, when we hear that each of Jair's sons rode a donkey, the equivalent today might be saying each son had his own Porsche. And together, these 30 sons in their 30 Porsches oversee a wide territory on their father's behalf. The bottom line is things are going well in Israel. There are no attacks from outside. There's no serious strife inside. And there are more donkeys than ever on the roads. This is an opportunity for Israel to reset and to change direction. There's no immediate crisis. It's a chance to lay good foundations for the future. But the evidence says Israel wasted the opportunity. Why would I say that? Well, notice where Jair was based. He led Israel, but his home turf was Gilead. We're told that in verse 3 and again in verse 4. But if you'll jump down to the last two verses of the chapter, we're told in verse 17 about a situation just a few years later. The Ammonites, enemies from outside Israel, come and they camp in Gilead. And in verse 18, we find the people of Gilead have no one to lead them. They have no plan. They're reduced to saying, anyone who's willing to volunteer will be our next leader. Any warm body who'll step forward gets to be our new president. There's nothing about what kind of person they need to be. If somebody rocks up and knocks on the door, they can have the job. Isn't that evidence Israel has wasted its years of peace and prosperity? Jer's 30 sons and their 30 Porsches have come and gone. And Israel is left with no leaders. No new generation has been trained. 
Nothing was put in place for the future. And when an emergency hits, it's just panic stations. Israel has been asleep in their peace and prosperity. And there's no time now for any kind of selection process. Whoever wants the job of leader can have it. And next week we'll see how that turned out. But really what we hear in verses 17 and 18 is just the minor piece of evidence that Israel wasted its years of peace and prosperity. The major piece of evidence is back up in verse 6. After verse 5 has told us about Jair's death, verse 6 says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. In one sense, this is nothing new. And that in itself is a problem. It shows Israel has made no spiritual progress in its years of peace and prosperity. But in fact, it's worse than just making no progress. The Israelites have plunged deeper than ever before into false worship. This is the most comprehensive description in the whole book of Israel's spiritual corruption. The people have turned to any and every God that's going. Rather than doing a spiritual reset, they've gone idle mad. And the results are totally predictable. Because Israel has forsaken the only true God, he lets them go their own way. He gives them into the hands of the nations whose gods they serve. In verse 8 it says, two of those nations, the Philistines and the Ammonites, shattered and crushed Israel. The word crushed was used in chapter 9 to describe what happened to Abimelech's head when the woman dropped a millstone on it. And it's appropriate here because the Philistines and the Ammonites are to the west and the east of Israel. And Israel finds itself being crushed between attacks from both sides. What a miserable situation. And it's all the more sad because of how Israel could have used their 45 years of peace and prosperity. But they wasted the opportunity. They came out of those 45 years leaderless and more spiritually immature than ever. And that's where this passage challenges you and me. You may not feel your life is very prosperous, but most of the world looks at us and wishes they had what we have. As I said earlier, no doubt there is stuff to complain about here in Britain. But we enjoy a level of peace and stability that's envied by millions of people in other places. So the question is, how are we using our peace and prosperity? How are you using it? Are you taking it for granted and frittering the opportunity away? Or are you using the opportunity to go after spiritual growth and maturity? Are you using the opportunities to meet for worship and prayer 
and to develop Christian relationships. I'm not into conspiracy theories, but none of us knows how long we'll have the religious freedom we have right now. It's already a lot less than it was eight months ago. Who knows what we will officially be allowed to do or not do in a year's time or two years' time. I'm not trying to make any predictions. I'm just saying we truly don't know how long we'll have these opportunities to worship in large groups, to have easy access to Bibles and Christian books. Just because we've had these things all of our lives, it doesn't mean we will have them the rest of our lives. Many Christians in the world today can't meet legally. They can't legally own a Bible or legally access Christian material online even. Let's not assume that could never happen to us. And because it could happen to us, shouldn't we be using this time not to while away our time and energy, but, and certainly not to go after idols of one kind or another. Instead, shouldn't we be using the freedom we have now to increase our knowledge of God's Word? To soak up the benefits of worshiping together and praying together. As a church, shouldn't we be using the opportunities we have to share the good news about Jesus? Like we said last week, now that we have two morning services, we have plenty of room for visitors. Let's invite them. Invite them to come and see what it is we are excited about as Christians. Why we want to be here even when so much else in society is shut down and not happening. Let's not waste our peace and prosperity. Then in the second half of our passage, let's not miss the point that relationship with God matters more than relief from hardship. We've just heard about Israel being shattered and crushed between the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now verse 9 focuses in on one of those enemies, the Ammonites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mattanites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from your, their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. If we hadn't read the first nine chapters of this book, God's response to Israel would seem pretty harsh. But in fact, the Lord knows, and we know, because we have read the first nine chapters, this is part of a cycle that repeats over and over. 
Again and again in this book, Israel has chosen the gods of the nations around her that led to oppression at the hands of her enemies. Because, of course, false gods are really no gods. Worshipping them never leads to anything good. And when Israel's false worship led naturally to oppression, they cried out to the Lord, and in His great mercy, He would raise up a new deliverer, only for Israel to take God's grace for granted and slide right back into idol worship. So this is a long-term pattern. And here, finally, God says, I've lost patience with this. You love your idols so much, why don't you stick with them? Quit coming back to me because you don't really want me. I've heard these cries of yours many times before. And I'm not fooled. I know this isn't a change of heart. You just want me to get you out of trouble. Let your idols save you. They're the ones you actually love. And verse 15 says, But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. As we read this, we might think there's something new here. They got rid of their foreign gods and served the Lord. But actually, this is not new. Israel has been doing this every time they need deliverance. They've shoved the idols in the closet for a few months. They've made a new playlist of praise songs, but only until the Lord delivered them. Then they went back to normal. And normal for them was doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, you can see their attitude here in verse 15. We've sinned, and no doubt there's a price to pay for that, but God, would you just do your job and get rid of these Ammonites? Rescue us now. The rescue is what they really care about. One writer has called this bomb shelter religion. Bomb shelter religion says, I'll agree to anything, God. Just do your bit and rescue me from this bad situation I'm in. We'll sort the other stuff out later. But in fact, the other stuff almost never does get sorted out later. Because bomb shelter religion only cares about the bombs going away. Or the sickness going away. Or the unemployment going away. Or the COVID crisis going away. Here in Israel, what they care about is the Ammonites going away. They don't really want to know and love the Lord. They don't really want to live for His glory and see him honored through their obedience. They don't really care about seeing the nations come to worship him. Just rescue us now, for goodness sake. We don't like this pain. Make it go away. In verse 16, our English Bibles have translated God's reaction as he could bear Israel's misery no longer. But that's almost certainly giving the wrong impression. 
because it suggests the Lord is sad that Israel's in trouble. But actually, the writer of Judges is telling us the Lord is disgusted with Israel's fake repentance. The only other place in this book where we find the same wording is in chapter 16. And there we're told Samson was sick to death of Delilah's nagging. When we get to chapter 16, we'll think about what was going on in that situation. But when we find the same wording here, it helps us clarify the Lord's reaction here. He is not impressed with Israel's bomb shelter religion. He's sick to death of it. And we get evidence of that in the final verses of the chapter. We've already looked at those as evidence Israel had wasted their years of peace and prosperity. They have no leader. But verses 17 and 18 also count as evidence of the Lord's disgust. Because you'll notice, he does not raise up a deliverer for them as he had before. He doesn't send anyone to save them. The Israelites are left to dredge up their own deliverer from somewhere. And next week we'll see how that goes for them. But for now, the significant point is that God knows full well Israel doesn't truly care about a relationship with him. All they want is for the pain and adversity to go away. Rather than wanting God, they want the Ammonites gone. And they reckon God is their best bet to deliver what they want. And maybe we can see this outlook is alive and well today too. It's there every time somebody says, I asked God for something, to sort something out for me, to take something away, to give me something, and he didn't do it. So I'm done with him. He didn't deliver, so forget him. But the Bible says we were made for a relationship with God. He is not the heavenly equivalent of the Hermes delivery driver. The Bible says our greatest privilege as human beings is to know the God who made us. To experience his love and to respond to him with love. And yes, in the context of that, in the context of a loving relationship with him, of course we bring our cares to him. Of course we share our burdens with him. But our interest in him doesn't depend on him doing what we want. We love him for who he is. The one whose beauty outshines the sun. The one whose presence satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. That's why the writer of Psalm 42 could say, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. That is true biblical faith. It's about desiring and pursuing God himself. Not just his gifts, but him.
And so just as we've heard the challenge of this passage not to waste our peace and prosperity, let's also hear the challenge to consider our faith and ask ourselves, what is the state of my faith? What does my faith consist of? Am I growing to love God more than his gifts and blessings? Am I growing to see him as the greatest gift and blessing of all? Am I learning that if I have him, I can even live with hardship and adversity and pain? Because his love satisfies me. It lifts me up. It refreshes me even in the darkest of times. That's not an easy truth to learn. It's not easy for any of us. We only learn it slowly, I think. Maybe most of us start out with a faith that's pretty heavily focused on what we want God to fix for us. But over time, as we pay attention to his word, as we learn more about him through his word, his great beauty, his wisdom, his love, then we can all learn to value him more and more. So let's see this passage of scripture as an opportunity to take stock. To ask ourselves, how am I using the time and opportunities I have? Am I using them to pursue a deeper relationship with God? And we can all thank God that half time is not the same as full time. Maybe you think you've been getting so much wrong. But that is the beauty of half time. It's a chance to make adjustments and then take the field again. If you're here this morning then full time hasn't come for you yet. You can come to God honestly and ask for his help to make adjustments. Maybe for you, what's needed is not an adjustment. Maybe what you need is a whole new start. Maybe you've never realized and admitted that you're lost without God. That you're separated from him because of your sin. And that you need a savior. Well, the great news is you can find that savior this morning. Jesus Christ is the savior you need. He came so you could be delivered from the guilt of your sin and reconciled to God. Trusting in Jesus is where a relationship with God begins. In a few moments, we will be sharing the Lord's Supper, and we'll have an opportunity during that time to respond quietly and personally to God. But as we prepare to do that, the musicians are going to sing a song that points us to God's love delivered through Jesus Christ. The song is, Here is Love.
One of the beautiful things about this meal is that it is not a time for us to make resolutions about trying harder. It's not a time to sit here and batter ourselves about our failures. This is a time to receive God's grace again and to rest in His grace because it's God's love and grace that changes us. As we recognize His love poured out at the cross, as we consider what it means to be adopted, made a child of God by grace, that is what changes us. As those truths sink down into our hearts. So as we take the bread and wine this morning, these symbols of Jesus' broken body and His shed blood, Let's look up and realize God offers himself to us. On the cross, Jesus opened the way, not just to blessings and good things, but to God himself, the greatest blessing, the greatest good thing. What Jesus won for us was not some sort of certificate saying we're okay now, Jesus won the opportunity for you and me to know and to love God. So let's take a moment just to be quiet and reflect on that. You can speak to God personally, individually. We'll do that quietly before we move on to the bread and wine. Ask our servers if they'll make their way to the front and get ready to serve the bread. But let me just first say, if you are trusting in Jesus as the only way to God, then please join us in this meal. Uh, it's for people who are trusting in Jesus. But if that doesn't describe you, or if you're not really sure what I mean when I say that, then please today just let the bread and wine pass you by and We'd love to talk to you afterwards about what it means to trust in Jesus. The servers are going to bring the bread uh, around, and as you're served, please just keep the bread, and we'll eat it together.
Let's eat together and give thanks. We'll ask the servers to distribute the wine, and again, if you'll keep the cup, we'll drink it together. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can know God. Let's drink together. And now as we finish our time together, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love. Amen.